Hey everyone, welcome to the Unhandled Exception podcast. I'm Dan Clark and this is episode number 32. So we have reached the next power of two in episode numbers, which is something that is going to be increasingly difficult each time. So I'm going to celebrate this while I can. (laughs) And in this episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by Jess White to chat all about technical leadership. And Jess has already been on the show before in the group episode about DDD conferences and has actually agreed to come back on again. Jess, you must be a glutton for punishment. Uh, No, it's all that blackmail material you have on me, Dan. (laughs) I thought it was the guitars. (laughs) A bit of that too. Well, uh, for context for the listeners, in the last group episode, at the end we all realised that most of us had instruments of one form or another in the background. So at the end we just took a screenshot of like the Zoom matrix with everyone with our guitars and most of them were actually guitars i think yeah i think they were but yeah that, that was that was good fun cool so for those that missed the other episode or don't know you from all the other awesome stuff you do in the dev community could you give our listeners a quick intro to your background and what what it is you do yeah certainly so in terms of community i run the ddd east midlands conference with a couple of other people, founded it with my other half, Morton Broccoli. And DDD in this case isn't domain-driven design, it's developer, 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 <laughs> which is uh, comes up a lot. Um, but that's an umbrella of conferences which are free, hosted on a weekend, try to be accessible as possible. I also co-organized .NET Knots, a monthly meetup in Nottingham around .NET with Peter Gaga. I do a lot of mentorship and part of the .NET Foundation membership committee. I'm a Microsoft MVP. This sounds a lot fancier than it is. And in my day job, I'm a technical architect. That's a lot of stuff. How do you do it all? Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> so before we delve into technical leadership, I do realize that in the past two episodes, I completely forgot to do any listener mentions. So I'm going to quickly do two this time. And the first one goes to Tom Dutton, who on Twitter tweeted, some great tips in this episode, Dan. I will throw a productivity tip out there. I feel more productive and focused using a standing desk. I also definitely need to try the Pomodoro technique. So thanks, Tom. I agree about the standing desk. I do love mine. And he's referring to the episode I did in January on developer productivity. And the second one goes to Zach B, who very kindly bought me a coffee on buymeacoffee.com, saying, great podcast about developer productivity. So thank you, Zach, for supporting the podcast and keeping me caffeinated. And if you want to get mentioned on the show, just send a tweet using hashtag unhandledexception and all feedback is greatly appreciated. And I'm Drakan on Twitter, D-R-A-C-A-N. Right, technical leadership. So around the time where I might have moved to a lead role, I actually instead moved to contracting and consulting. So at least by job title anyway, I've never been a lead. I certainly do a lot of architecture and mentoring and that kind of thing, but I've never actually done, like air quotes, only Jess can see me air quoting at the moment, but <laughs> I've never actually done any people management as such, like other than what comes from mentoring and just general teamwork. So perhaps I've been lucky and avoided the politics side of things. So I thought this would be a super interesting chat where we can actually dig into people management and I guess politics if that's the right word (laughs) yes i guess so i will have to be careful around that given where i'm employed (laughs) but (laughs) what i would say though in argument to that is you say that you haven't done a lead role per se but you have mentioned mentorship and if you were a senior i would also argue some of that is leadership too so i did a talk at dotnet southwest in november exploring what we mean by technical leadership as well as going through it 
And as part of that, I went through my background from junior developer all the way through to where I am now as a TA. I have done the junior, mid, senior, lead developer, TA, very kind of typical route up until this point. But I think if you're doing anything that's guiding someone's learning and development, even if it's not in this typical people management role, you are a leader. So as seniors that I've worked with, all of them have been teaching other developers how to code, how to interact with stakeholders and other disciplines. And all of that, in my mind, is leadership, technical and personal. Yeah, I think with the whole teaching others to teach, I see some developers that try to hoard because maybe they feel it gives them some kind of stability when actually, in my opinion, that's the complete opposite. And what I try and do when I'm mentoring is the people I'm teaching, try and get them to be able to teach so it kind of like spreads. I fully agree with that. Having your role as a scalable role is much more beneficial to the people around you and to yourself rather than being that ivory tower person. I was very lucky. In fact, I think this was from Morton when I first came into tech. I asked him what the difference was between a junior, a mid, a senior, and where we go from there. And he explained it as a developer is really good at code. A senior developer is really good at developing developers and a lead is really good at developing teams. And that's kind of how I've seen it ever since is if I'm a senior dev, how can I make the people around me better at the practices they're doing, the code they're writing, helping them in their development, as well as doing some code as well, because, you know, don't want to miss out. Well, that's the thing that would scare me about moving into, well, not lead really, because I think a lead still get the hands dirty. But moving over to management, if you're, because I don't know whether that's the next logical step for some people moving to management, but I could not do code. I would miss it too much. <laughs> so with my role so far, I went into more mentorship as a senior. I know a lot of places you actually start doing people management as a senior developer as well. That's how it is in the legal aid agency where I'm currently working. And then as a lead, there was a little bit more involved. And I'm still a people manager as a technical architect as well. The why on that is quite interesting. So I'll get into that in a second. But it doesn't drive you away from the code so much. Even as a lead dev, probably 25% of my time was the people management bit. I was still getting to do a lot of technical work. And again, as you say, leads change depending on where you are. But I wouldn't be scared of it. You get the warm and fuzzies from helping people with their development. I don't know if everybody has this, but I do. When somebody challenges an idea that I've had, and it can be technical, it can be career progression, but it's really good having those conversations and it can help you as well as helping that person. In terms of TA, typically you don't see a lot of TAs who do people management, but I actually think it's quite important for getting people into this career <laughs> because as a senior, I thought if I wanted to progress, I had to become a very stereotypical people manager and I didn't want to do that same as you, like get too far away from the tech. But I went to the lead position and moved sideways into TA and I kept my people management responsibilities because A, I can help people go, oh, maybe architecture is actually the right route for me. And B, it keeps me in touch with the teams that I'm having an effect on. So I find you can, when you get to a certain level, lose a lot of empathy for the impact of your own decisions on the people who are actually having <laughs> to implement them. And this keeps me honest with my teams. Yeah, Definitely. I think also just if you're still coding yourself as a lead and actually, well, at least you're showing that you know what you're talking about and it's hard if you're not actually doing any code or architecture or anything, then your team maybe would have more respect if they know that you know what you're doing. But I guess if it's a manager that's telling you how to architect stuff, but they're not actually doing anything, then that's kind of harder to, to gel as a team, I guess. 
So that's a really tricky challenge and one I had to face as a lead developer because I wasn't involved in just one team. I think I actually had six. <laughs> so at that point, I can do the occasional PR, but I can't really do what I used to do in, in my previous role, which was lead by example, going, this is why I'm doing it. This is how I'm doing it. Pairing with people. That was a lot easier to kind of change hearts and minds. But as a lead dev across many teams, you don't get to go into the weeds as much, which is a shame. But you end up learning different techniques to influence in other ways. I always go back to the scientific method with everything I talk about, monitoring and community and everything. But I find with people in our industry, if you show, if you go, hey, look, let's try this thing out. It might not work, but try it for a little while and then we'll measure the effects. And then they start to see, you know, pairing, they're getting less incidents coming through. Developers doing more testing. Hey, we're getting things through the board faster and doing an evidence-based approach. And though you're not doing it yourself, it actually kind of helps because it empowers the team themselves to be driving this and going, this thing we're doing is great. This is what's happened. And kind of spread that through other teams too. So there are various techniques you can use. Again, going back to my, my Southwest talk, I went through a number of different known techniques and theories for these kind of behaviors. Speaking of your .NET Southwest talk, one thing I really liked at the very beginning is you did, well, I was going to say a poll, but two polls. The first one asking the audience some words that they associate with good leaders, and then the second one, bad leaders. And I found like some of the results really interesting. Although for the bad leaders, I saw someone had put sloppy shoulders, which was a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that one. That's not taking accountability. So letting things just kind of go, oh, it's not my fault. Oh, I see. Right. That, that makes yeah. sense now. <laughs> I thought someone was just like being silly. <laughs> yeah, letting it slide off your shoulders. <laughs> I was very lucky with those polls because it's the first time I'd run them. And it could have gone either way. But luckily, all the answers were kind of what I expected and led quite well into the talk. So, yeah, I was a little bit nervous about running that, but it was very interesting. What did you find interesting about the answers, Dan? The, well, the sloppy shoulders for one, but, but I guess it's kind of a lot of them is what I would expect. So like, I, I did just make a note of some of them. So to give some examples, like empathy, like good empathy, understanding, active listening, accountability, patience, skilled, vision, respectful, good communicator, collaborator. And so it's kind of what I would expect, and I totally agree on, on them. And one comment you made after the bad poll was, they seem to be coming in a lot faster, the bad ones rather than the good ones. <laughs> so it's kind of, I don't know whether people have had lots of bad experience, but some of the bad words people chose were bad-tempered, authoritarian, bad communicator, arrogant, micromanagement, unknowledgeable, and yeah, the sloppy shoulder thing. <laughs> Which goes directly into what you were saying earlier about these ivory towers and kind of protecting your own code or your own domain and being that source of all knowledge immediately becomes a bad leader because they give the impression of being very protective over what they're doing, which can come across as quite aggressive to some people. They're not sharing that knowledge. And it ends up creating a team that's not psychologically safe. You don't feel safe to make a mistake or to raise a concern. And that overall, in my opinion, leads to bad code. There's also the bus factor as well. If one person knows everything and is hoarding that knowledge and not willing to share, 
as we said before, if they, they're doing that because they want to feel more stable, but it doesn't make the team very stable because if they go on holiday, if they're ill, or if they leave the company, they might get other opportunities and leave the company. What does that do to the company? It's just It's just not helpful at all. It's not, but I can understand where these behaviours come from. And as you say, it's it's this point of insecurity. It's wanting to make sure that you are stable in your job. They can't get rid of you, that you are the most knowledgeable person in the room. But kind of going on a slight tangent is this is why I also think uh, (laughs) non-male developers get pushed into these kind of roles because we get seen as motherly, which you can't see, but I'm being quite... (laughs) profusive about with my hands at the minute I I don't think that's right I think a lot of these characteristics are just being a nice human being and they aren't any way related to gender but it's sad that you see more women who are very good technically getting pushed into a heavy management role rather than having this encouragement of a split between yeah you can do some people management but also you're a good technical person too and I think that's a failing in our industry more than anything else yeah, definitely. I find it sad, really, that if I, I've like you, I've worked in a lot of different companies, and if I think back to all of those companies, I honestly can't think of one female developer that I've worked with, which is really sad. And I suppose if I use my imagination and try and imagine those roles are reversed, so imagine 99.9% of the development industry were female, now is the only male, I would feel quite maybe alone, I guess. And that must be what it must be like for a female developer in tech, which is not right. I mean, I'm quite a laddie girl, so I get on, uh, I really, I shouldn't say this, but I, I don't really see gender as an issue. I get on with everybody, one of these things. But going back to the leadership topic, it does really change the kind of feedback you get as a female leader and whether that's a technical leader or a people manager. More for the technical leadership, the amount of times that I've had feedback that I'm too abrasive, I'm too blunt, I'm too certain in my opinions. And I turn around to my male colleagues going, do you ever have this? Not a single bit, never. Um, And I, I still think that might be just People see a five foot two woman come into the room and expect her to be quite meek. But I will always have my researched opinions and I'm quite comfortable voicing them. But because it goes against certain people's expectations, suddenly they get a little bit irked by it, which is, I don't, I still haven't quite come around how to get over that beyond if I get feedback that isn't constructive in any way. So you could have phrased this in XYZ way instead of doing it the way you did I tend to not listen to it because if they think I'm abrasive but I think I'm still doing my job and being an effective communicator that's their problem not mine in that case and I'm finding that with mentorship at the moment of women getting into more senior positions I'm trying to get that across that it's, it's not their fault that they're being perceived in those ways sometimes it can be the person who's listening taking it on as they want regardless of gender or anything there's so many different personalities. So you're going to get people that are more quiet. You're going to get people that are more assertive. And that's got nothing to do with gender. Yeah, 100%. And I have a huge admiration for those people who are very quiet. And then the one piece they say in a meeting is golden. (laughs) I would love to be that person, but I've never have been. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's important that everyone 
no matter what your experience level is, that you feel that you can push back. I think that's important in a team because I've had it where people on paper, way less experienced than me, I've been saying something and they've said, oh, just out of curiosity, why has it been done this way? And then like a, a certain part of like the architecture and it's like, oh, actually, you're right. That could be simplified if we did it a different way. Or And just having these articulated conversations. I've had a lot of these conversations in the past week even, which has been interesting. As I say, I work across multiple teams. And uh, in one of the teams, I made a mistake and I held up my hands and went, I'm really sorry I caused you all these problems. This is what I did and this is what I've learned from it. And since doing that from quite a senior role, they've all been holding up their hands to things, which has been hilarious, but they're now learning from each other and it's, it's safer to do that, which I think is a great thing. But likewise, I was having a conversation with someone about some code that they'd been doing. I had some concerns around it and I went, before I go into my concerns, is there anything that you see about this that you don't think is right? And they went through a few things, which is exactly actually what I was going to point out. I went, why hasn't this been raised? But I'm not the most experienced person in the team, so what do I know? And uh, we explored, actually, because they've been working with an apprentice recently. I went, have you learned from your apprentice? He's like, yes. Like, then people can learn from you too. Experience doesn't come into it. It's a fresh pair of eyes. And trying to get that as a culture within the teams is very, very difficult. But it's, as you say, it's because people are so different too, which is where some of these methodologies come in, is also kind of approaching how people like to communicate within your team, making sure that that works properly, making sure that if language is coming across abrasively, getting them to go on a call instead of text, because text can be difficult, making sure that different learning types are accounted for in a team, because one person might learn well by just reading something, another person might need to do something and trying to see how those two people can work together. And that's where you really see that scalability of leadership happening because they start to help each other rather than you having to be involved all the time. You mentioned pair programming before as well. Do you find that there's a lot of benefit with pair programming or mob programming? I'm a huge fan of it. So in the teams I'm currently working with, we do a combination of pair programming and then somebody separate does the peer review afterwards for actually checking to see if it's working properly. The benefits I see are that you have that uh, opportunity for learning in both directions. You have that challenge throughout. We also drive quite a test-driven culture, so it's easier to ping pong and one person writes a failing test, the next bit does the next bit of functionality. They hold each other accountable a bit more. But it's mostly, as you were saying, the problem with the ivory towers. If they go away, what happens? If somebody has COVID, that happens a lot at the moment, or uh, has a family emergency and they need to step away, there's someone else there who's up to date with what's happening with that code and, and can continue it on. So I think there's a lot of value to pair programming, though it's a really difficult thing to get over at the start. Back when I first started development, I'm a highly anxious person. I'm very open to the fact that I'm on medication for it. So the idea of coding in front of someone I didn't know just sent me into a frenzy. But I've got used to it. And I find that because you tend to be pairing with your team and if you've got that good culture in your team, you're quite comfortable with them, especially with those open communication lines, it gets less scary as you do it. And also when you first start in the company, so not the current team I'm working with, the contract I had before, that was the first, well, it was the first time full-time remote and also they did a lot of pair programming. It was pretty much all the time. And I picked up the code base really quickly and the design patterns really quickly because 
I was doing it with someone else that was experienced on that code base and with the patterns. So then it just, as you say, it's kind of, it just spreads the consistency. It spreads the knowledge of that code base, the knowledge of the business. So I really like it. But I guess on the flip side, that being pair programming all the time, one thing I missed was being able to get in the zone and put my headphones on. (laughs) And where I'm finding the current team I'm working with, it's a bit more mixed. We do some pair programming and some not, which I actually much prefer because I think you can have too much pair programming. I agree with that. And one of my teams, the way we've got around this is we have this thing called the back pocket log, which is we have a certain amount of capacity in our sprints for... If somebody just needs a day to themselves, because it happens to all of us, we've got these like one, two pointer stories. They can go, I'm sorry, I need to press pause on the ticket I'm currently doing with this person. Life's got a bit too much. And I'm just going to pick up this quick one for today. And I'll get back to being human again tomorrow, (laughs) (laughs) which I I wholly encourage because sometimes I just want to sit in a corner and not talk to anyone either. That's really cool, actually, intentionally putting easy, small tickets for a bit of downtime. I like that. Yeah, because, I mean, we get the most advantage from pairing from from the most complex tickets if you've got two eyes are better than one. It's a a saying for a reason. But if you just want to do a quick fix, you know, change the color of a button for a day, that's all good. Go ahead. The little things need doing as well. It's all very well working on the big, massive, shiny feature, but there's lots of business as usual, easy, as you say, change a color, change a bit of text, do, do these small things. You can feel more productive if you know you've knocked off. You've actually completed the definition of done on a f- on something that day. <laughs> it's nice as well because it gives us room for a bit of space which isn't necessarily driven by product. So if there's a bit of tech that you want to do or Dependabot is starting to pile up a little bit, you can start to address some of those issues rather than always having to have it prioritized against the big product features and then never getting to do it. So I think it helps create a bit of sanity there too. Yeah. I guess with allocating time within sprints for other stuff, active and self-learning is another big important one. It was interesting I had this conversation with the main team I'm working with at the moment. And they are really lucky that the dev manager is very, very pro-active learning. He really actively encourages it. And as part of this conversation, a lot of the team members who weren't actually doing active learning within work when they were encouraged to, the reason they gave was that, oh, actually, we've just got, they've got sprint work and other stuff to do. So they found there was never time. And then my advice to that was that instead of doing it that way around, if you schedule out like half an hour a day or whatever it is, and rather than learning going around everything else, trying to fit around everything else, if you fit everything else around your learning, because that is really important. Otherwise, you just won't get it done. And like even half an hour a day, over a year that's massive fully agree Uh, so again it's different strokes for different folks but where I'm currently working we have 20% time so that's a whole day every week fantastic it's been really driven because we've got a lot of legacy systems so we're having to train people who are used to working on newer stuff on some of the older stuff to even cope with it but we've got a really supportive PM and DM community they make sure that A team can just say, okay, Fridays is learning and development. We're not going to do any product work or whatever way they want to manage that. And it is really, really encouraged. And yes, sometimes it's focused around what we're going to be doing in a few weeks time. But today my devs are playing with Sonic Pi because they wanted to do something in Python. They didn't necessarily want to build an API. So they're making music this afternoon, which is uh, good fun. 
That is awesome. <laughs> I'm missing out on that one. And then myself, I choose to start an hour earlier than everyone else. So I know in the mornings I have an hour to do a bit of reading, a bit of learning development, because as a TA as well, I need to keep up to date with what's happening. And AWS moves so fast. <laughs> what, what's AWS? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, Azure boy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Uh, these MVPs, what can we say? <laughs> it's like Azure, but in orange. Oh, I see. Are they going to renew your MVP through saying that? <laughs> or should, I shouldn't say that, actually, should I? <laughs> uh, it's okay. Claire never listens to your podcast anyway. <laughs> oh, touche, touche. <laughs> so when I was mentioning about me doing pair programming a lot in my last contract and that being my first fully remote role, and like now, to be honest, I'm not going back to an office. <laughs> Do you find that, presumably, that there are big differences in managing people and doing technical leadership remotely versus when we used to be in offices? Yes. For a start, a lot less people take the mickey out of my heights because they don't realize how short I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot more difficult remotely. You have to put a lot more effort in as a technical lead, as a personal lead. It's the little conversations you miss in the office sometimes, because even as a tech lead, if you're going on saying, you know, our biggest priority is single sign-on, helping the teams do that, you miss out on catching team health and where there's concerns just from those little corridor chats. So I'm finding, again, I, I don't want to go back to office work. I love working remotely, but I'm having to do a lot more uh, direct conversations. So reaching out to the right people, finding out what the pulse of the team is like, what the health is like, what the appetite is for the work, making sure I'm coordinating well with product, with delivery, with the other TAs to make sure our approach is correct, that our timing's correct. What else is coming down the line? And you do have to make the effort to make sure that not only are you making the time to have these conversations, but you're doing them in the right formats. So is a phone call better than Slack in certain people's situations? Can it be an email rather than a meeting, that never-ending discussion? And that takes a lot of coordination and thought. <laughs> I have a notebook in front of me at all times for this very reason, to make sure that I am doing the right things all the time. But there are ways around this too. So not necessarily for everyone, but as, as I say, my teams, across all teams, we have a social every Wednesday evening. And that's just for general chit chat. We play a bit of online Pictionary, but people get relaxed and they start to vent about some of the stuff that happens at work. And that saves me a number of conversations that I otherwise would have had to go out and do. So you can trick people into giving the information you would have got in the office anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Are your team members going to be listening to this? <laughs> yep, and they're going to give me jit for it as well. Uh, nice, <laughs> nice, I like it. <laughs> it's important that you do have like healthy jit giving as well. Yeah, healthy banter, not bad banter, no toxic banter. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I mean, when uh, I was in office at Experian, there was a big laugh because I was acting lead of a couple of teams and the technical architects in Experian were all six foot two and hard to get hold of. So you just see me stomping across the office going, oi, you, over here, <laughs> and dragging this gigantic fella behind me to come and sort out work with my teams. <laughs> You've mentioned your height a few times in this episode. I feel like this needs to feature in the title somehow, in the podcast title. <laughs> uh, the, the power of being small. <laughs> so one of the things you did mention, well, going back to the, this whole concept of mentoring, you're, you spoke about mentoring and coaching what's the difference between the two haha 
Um, so I talk about mentoring, coaching and sponsorship as well and how these things, they overlap, but they do differ. And I think a little bit of this is the power dynamic in the conversations. So if I have a mentee, they often need a lot of handholding and guidance. I'm normally a little bit more senior than them or they're wanting to get into a position that I'm in and learn from my experiences. So I will work with them to put together either a plan for their progression, if that's technical or career, up to them. We'll work through activities that they can do, how they can practice these things. And it's very hands-on. And you have to be careful with mentorship as well. I always give this caveat that you're not being their therapist <laughs> because sometimes people do come to you with all the woes in the world and you need to make sure that that line is that you're helping them in terms of their career, in terms of their tech. And in some cases, personally as well, but you're not going into the, I think you've got depression, you need to go get help. Tell them to go get help. Don't try and help themselves. That's a little bit of a tangent. Coaching is the next level up in my view. So I have a lot of people who I've mentored previously who I now view as being their coach. They are getting to the same level as me, sometimes overtaking me. And instead of giving them direct actions on what to do, I give coaching questions to help them guide themselves. So where is it that they want to be? How do they view they're going to get there? Is that achievable? And there's a number of different frameworks you can do for this to try and assess if that person's actually going to do what they want to do, if it is the right thing for them, how they get there, how we measure it, and just be that coaching hand to get them to where they want to go without giving them the direction actions on how to get there. It's a much easier relationship to manage. <laughs> it takes a lot less work, but it's still highly enjoyable. And then there's sponsorship, which can come across all of this, which I do a lot with speaking more than anything else which is going, okay, this person is now ready to have a go. I'm going to go out to my network and say, this person's great. Give them the opportunity. So I've done this with a few conferences even where they've invited me to come speak. God knows why. And then I said, I will do, but only if you take on this person too and give them an opportunity or gone, I can't, but here's another great speaker who could do it in my place try and do that at work as well so if there's an opportunity for not somebody to necessarily be promoted but at least try out some of the responsibilities making their line manager aware making their boss aware of hey this person could be really good for this how about you just let them dip their toe in and see if they're comfortable with it so i see these three things as all kind of linking together at different levels what i would say as well is that you can do them internally in work but also externally i tend to have my coaches externally to my work but I sometimes will have a mentor in work too try and get that balance because my mentor will have more of an idea of what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis and be able to help guide that more than someone who doesn't necessarily have that view yeah it's really interesting I've kind of those three terms I've always just umbrellaed under mentorship but I guess there are those subtle differences going back to what you mentioned about getting people to do talks and things I find it quite interesting because i do a lot of talks with .NET Oxford and obviously various bits and bobs. And I found when I've gone to teams and because I'm quite passionate about this kind of stuff, then it's really interesting. I find that all the people start to get the bug too. So I remember like a couple of contracts ago, this was actually when it was in person. This was in Oxford and that's why I run .NET Oxford. And I think pretty much most members of the team ended up doing at some point at least one in-person talk 
at Donald Oxford. And that is just so satisfying, seeing that passion spread to our team. Yeah, it's hugely rewarding. DDD Smithland's always got to give it a plug, right? Uh, so <laughs> one of the speakers at the most recent event, I met them when they were doing a boot camp and they've become a fantastic engineer. And they came and did a talk at DDD Smithland's, their first talk. And somebody was watching the audience who uh, works for an international conference and now she's been invited to that. Oh, wow. And just seeing these opportunities happen, I have nothing to do with it. But at the same time, it just makes me really, really happy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And even if it's you had nothing to do with that, it's kind of it's just the more passion there is in a workplace or wherever it is, the more contagious that becomes. Yeah, I found um, when I was an engineer, that's why I used to go to conferences. <laughs> it used to be that I was starting to flag in my enthusiasm. I was bored of what I was doing. I didn't know why I was an engineer anymore. So I'd go to a conference, see some different opinions and get really excited about our industry again. (laughs) (laughs) Difficult to do in the last two years, though. Yes, yeah. Well, to be honest, I get the same kind of thing from podcasts. I've been an avid podcast listener for a long, long time. And just over the years, hearing the passion that the hosts and the guests have about different technologies has kind of just over time just rubbed off on me, which I think that's contributed a lot towards my passion to technology, which has hopefully spread to other people as well. I'm sure it has. (laughs) So we've spoken a lot about trying to help out team members. How do you balance what the team wants versus what the business wants and needs? Excellent question. Uh, By making things user-driven. So there's a couple of aspects here. It could be that the team wants something which actually aligns to product, but they want to do it in a way that isn't compatible with where the entire department is going. And in that case... I will sit down with the team and go, look, here are the options, but this is why we can't do X, Y, Z. A good example that I can think of right now is the teams I've been working in have been moving to a new language. And a couple of them are past C-sharp developers. So naturally they're like, oh, .NET 6, yay. (laughs) Can't blame them. It's great. But in the business we're working with, it's highly Ruby and Python based. So I've had to go, look, in terms of recruitment and retention, in terms of costs for actually keeping these things maintained in terms of if you go away who's going to look after it we have to pick a language that goes with the majority of what people know and especially with ruby and python both dynamic languages quite easy to hop from one to the other someone out there is not going to be happy with that comment whereas c sharp being very tight the jump from somebody who's done years of ruby is it's a bit bigger and a bit more of an ask which they've been a bit disgruntled with i'm not going to lie but they understand the context of why I'm saying no, rather than just me just saying no and then being angry about it. What I was saying about the user focus is it might be that there's a technical thing that wants to come through, product have pushed against it because they've got their priorities. And if we use business value and use that same language across both our technical and our product tickets, so what is the impact to our user? What is the value for the business? What's the impacts of this work? It's easier to have that prioritization conversation with delivery, with product. So they can say, we're doing this work because it's going to save the business, I don't know, 200K a month. And we can go, ah, but if we do this work, it improves the performance of this page, which makes our users happier and saves us this much in conjunction. And you can have that conversation on the same playing field rather than it just being two heads butting without talking the same language. 
what you mentioned there about cost as well, just putting an amount on something, that in itself, like where there's technical debt that a team want to fix, you can say, well, we need to do this, but it's not going to change the user experience whatsoever. Or you can say, well, actually, this is going to save you X, like put a figure on it. And money is also time, essentially near time. Exactly. So if you're having an increase in incidents, you can go, here's our mean time to detect and respond to incidents. This is how many incidents we're getting in, and this is how much it's effectively costing us in terms of people working on it or outages or anything else. Everything can be equated to money if you're careful about it. Exactly. And even like tooling, if you want to license for some new tool for the team, and you can say, well, we want this tool but then you might not get it. But if you say, well, actually, this is going to make help us do our work faster, which is going to save you so many hours, and it's going to save you this much money, then putting it in financial terms can be really beneficial. Going back to, you mentioned about languages, different languages, and you also mentioned that you manage multiple teams. With the whole team autonomy thing, I always struggle with this because... Does the whole team should be able to manage themselves, choose their own way of running and their own stuff. But then from a business's point of view, if you've got multiple teams, consistency in my mind is quite key too. And I'm not sure how the best way of balancing that, because just like you said, if every team has a completely different language, because, oh, it's, oh I want to try out this new shiny language that no one else in the team is used to. And then the lead of one of the teams that tried to use Haskell or something for one of the services then goes to work for another company. And then everyone else has to maintain that. I'm not saying anything's wrong with Haskell. I'm just giving (laughs) an example of something that might be completely different than the rest of the tech stack. How do you manage the balance between team autonomy and actually consistency throughout the business? I'm very lucky with my teams because they rely on me very heavily as a TA. So if they're going to make these decisions, they do always involve me which I like to think is because I've gained a level of trust and respect with them. Who knows what the actual case is. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it's, as I say, it's given in the context of they can always ask and challenge and give me the time to go and find out the why or why not. But as long as they give the context back on, in terms of the business level, this is the effects it's going to have long-term for our maintenance, for our recruitment, et cetera. They seem to be okay with it. And also just going, you've got a learning and development day go ahead and do that. Just don't push anything to production in that language. And we're all good. And I'm happy with that. Even with proof of concepts, as I say, got a couple of devs who are more experienced in C Sharp than they are in Python, which they're currently working in. So when they're doing proof of concepts for themselves, it's much faster for them to write it in C Sharp and then kind of translate that across rather than do it from Python from scratch. That's fine. It's not going to production. I honestly don't care how their thought process works. But it's interesting you mention this as well, because I'm lucky in the type of developer I work with. I tend to use the word engineer a lot because they do a lot of testing. They do security and infrastructure too, but they're not picky about their language. They want to use the best tool for the job or the most appropriate tool for the business. And I think that's a bit of a struggle as well, is when you have developers who are very set in using one particular language and they go into a company that's not using that. That's an entirely different challenge in itself. And in that case, maybe that company isn't the right place for them and they need to be where they're doing the language that they love and that's fine. But I'm very lucky in that I've got quite flexible engineers who will just learn the best tool for the job. Yeah, I guess I'm probably the opposite of that because I probably wouldn't get a contract that wasn't .NET because I love it so much. But I do try try and learn other stuff as well. But I think .NET is where my heart is really. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, as I say, involved in the foundation and I'm MVP. I haven't actually coded in C Sharp at work. I have done outside of work in probably two and a half years. I've worked in eight different languages in my career so far, which, you know, there's, I'm, I'm deeper in C Sharp than I am in the other languages, but I can pick up relatively easily because a lot of it's syntax. But I also find there's a bit of power in being able to do that because it changes your way of thinking. Using a functional language compared to a type language, you completely change how you're approaching a problem and being able to apply that across. I find that really interesting. But yeah, we all have our biases <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine. I definitely agree with like trying different paradigms. It's kind of, if you pick up, I mentioned Haskell before, if you just play around with a functional language or F sharp, if, if you're set on .NET, but even like, it's not just languages, it's if you're a web developer, play around with some desktop or mobile development or vice versa. There's so many different paradigms in our industry where just trying a few different ones, as you say, can make you code differently. It's like me, even though I haven't really used a functional programming language like Haskell, I've done a lot of reading on functional programming and that has quite dramatically changed my C sharp because I write in a much more functional manner. And yeah, it makes a big difference. So it's all, all back to active learning. I think it also has a big impact on empathy as well. Where I can, I encourage my engineers to at least get a slight knowledge on infrastructure. A, because it's more likely they're going to become an architect that way. But also you have an understanding of what your code is running on and why we can't do certain things. And personally, I did some work with ops while I was a developer. And I found, again, that changed the way that I did my code because I knew where to affect it based on infrastructure versus where to affect it based on how I was writing the functionality I was. And I know that this isn't possible for all developers and tech is huge and it's a bit too much to ask of everything. But even just having a little bit of exposure also gives you empathy towards the teams you're working with and what they're having to deal with based on your work. <laughs> so I'm going to have to ask this. If you have to have a word with someone, whether we've spoken about being nice to people and everything, but if there is a member of the team that's just, I don't know, like we talked about remote development, maybe it's obvious that they're just not doing anything and you don't know where the time's going or whatever the reason, you just need a more negative conversation. Are there good ways of approaching that? There's a couple of bits of advice I'd give on this. First of all, don't do it in a group setting. <laughs> it's always going to come across as an attack if you do it in that way. If you're going to give feedback, try to have evidence of the behavior that you're seeing and the impacts of it whether that's to the team or to that person's own development, so that they've got something that they can relate to and action upon. Always have actions on what you would like to see or how they might be able to improve their interactions. The bit that might be a bit more difficult is when you have someone who you don't necessarily have a good relationship with, who you're having to have this conversation with. And there's nothing wrong with having a facilitator or a second pair of eyes in that room Unfortunately, as with any industry, sometimes people can get very defensive and very aggressive and take things personally. Sometimes we have personality clashes because we are all different. I know I'm a Marmite person. You either love me or hate me, and that's fine. But if I'm having to have these conversations with someone who's in my team I'm responsible for, but I know they don't necessarily like my way of communicating, I'll always ask a third party to come in who's impartial to it. I'll say to that person, look, I'm going to ask this person to come along. I've got some feedback to give. I want to make sure that it's taken in the right way and that you feel safe as well. Is that okay? 
just to make sure that for both people's sakes, we're not going to get into a heated argument. And is that kind of extra blanket there? Yeah, definitely. I think we're just the whole, not heated arguments, but just when things are said, I think it's important to be self-aware. And if you feel that emotionally you're going to say something, maybe don't. And because quite often I've had that and I've stopped myself. And then later on or the next day, I thought, thank God I didn't say that. Yeah, especially with working from home. Hmm. We have all of our home stresses at work and there's no way of getting away from them which is also part of that one-to-one conversation is I'm seeing this behavior or you're getting quite ratty in work. Like what's going on? Is there anything we can help with? Do you need to take a break from work even? I mean, I have to do it as well. I have to check myself before I wreck myself. Otherwise, if I've like, I don't know, my other half hasn't washed dishes or something and I've come in annoyed, I need to make sure that I'm leaving home at the door, but that's not always easy. I sometimes will have to turn around to my teams and going, I'm having a rough day. So if I'm a bit harsh, I'm sorry in advance. Please do call me out on it. But just so you know, I'm not in the best mental space. And I think that vulnerability also helps at my level because me being quite vulnerable and open about, I've got stuff going on. I'm sorry, life gets in the way. My teams do the same across the board. They'll put into Slack, Sorry, I'm, you know, I've got a tummy ache and it's affecting my mood. And everybody's very sympathetic to it because we've all got lives at home that uh, unfortunately we can't get away from at the minute. Yeah, exactly. And I guess it's really good that you're open about it, but some people aren't comfortable with that. So it's important to, if someone is noticeably different or off one day or, or maybe longer than a day, to actually just recognize the fact that people have lives and other things going on. Definitely. And that, again, is where you can just check in directly, going, you're right. Like, I don't need to dig into the details, but are you okay? And just see how they are. And hopefully they feel safe enough with you, they'll be open about it, but who knows. And you don't have to be a team leader to do that. It's like if you see a colleague that's struggling, just check in with them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as I say, being a Marmite person, some people won't be you know, open with me and that's fine. As long as they're talking to someone else on the team, He'll come to me going, just a heads up. Don't give them a hard time over what's going on because this is what's happening. Mm. That's fine. It doesn't need to come directly. One thing you mentioned in your talk was a term feedback loops. And I always think about this as a developer. So I'm thinking, how can I increase my feedback loops so I can be more productive using things like .NET 6 Hot Reload and various things like that. But in your talk, you were talking about this from comparing what I just said with actually feedback loops from a management people management point of view. Can we talk a bit about that? Yeah, I'd take, I'd take that a bit further even. It's feedback loops from a personal point of view. So it's something I struggled with going into more senior levels, if you've got a hierarchical system, I guess. But going through promotions is, as you say, when you're a developer, you do some code, test passed or test failed, or you get a ticket through, and all of your evidence of you achieving things happens within a couple of hours, within a couple of days. Like We're not talking a long period of time. So you can see your impacts very easily. And then as you step up the chain, I don't really like saying step up because I'd rather it be a flat hierarchy. It's just a different role. That's my own uh, problems coming in there. As you change role, that feedback loop gets longer. So as a people manager, 
I'm not going to have a one-to-one with someone and then they suddenly go out the room skipping where they had all these problems before. Might happen, very rare. But instead, we're talking about watching their progression over months. And it's not necessarily something I'm directly doing, especially in more of a coaching role. It's their actions, but I'm helping them get there. So being able to have a way of watching what your impacts are. And this comes from technical architecture as well. You're talking about long-term projects for a lot of the work that we do. Again, you're not going to see the feedback in a couple of days. It, It can take months, sometimes even years. But just having almost goalposts throughout that process to go, okay, I have achieved this, or this has happened and I've had an influence on it, which is why I now keep a yay list. (laughs) So every time I see something that I think is great and that I maybe had some part in, I write it down. So then when I have a day where I'm going, what is the point in my role? (laughs) Why am I even here? I can look at my yay list and go, actually, no, there is a reason I'm here. There is a reason to my job. And this is what's happening that's positive. I like that. And I guess maybe, I don't know how often you'd have one-to-ones with whoever's next to part. You said you didn't want to call it a hierarchy, but when you have your (laughs) one-to-ones with your manager, if you've written this year list, then you can remind yourself of what you've achieved where you might forget otherwise, I guess. It's very useful for pay reviews. I'm just saying that now. (laughs) (laughs) If you're uh, having quarterly or yearly reviews and you can just give them a PDF of the things that you've achieved or had influence on or what you've been doing, it makes your people manager's job a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm a big fan of, well, I don't so much do a year list, maybe should start to, but I'm a big fan of note taking and I take daily notes. So like I've got in my note taking tool, which I use Obsidian, I've got a page which I open at the start of each day. I have what I want to do, but I also write everything I've done so that things like in the next day stand up, I can just refer back to it. And I'm not thinking, oh, what did I do yesterday? I've got this checklist of things to do. And I just find having that history where I can look back on where I've, every day I've worked, I've got a just a bullet pointed list of everything I did that day. I go the other way around. I have a to-do list that I write at the end of each day for the next day. Nice, nice. <laughs> In oh, when was the January podcast episode, I did a solo episode on productivity. And one thing I spoke about was something mentioned in a book, The Productivity Ninja, that I read years ago. And it was talking about basically splitting yourself into two roles, manager role and worker role. So when you're in manager role, you're doing this, like writing your to-do list and planning out what you're going to work on. And then once you've got that list of very granular things, you're basically telling your worker role what to do. And then you switch hats to your worker and you can be in the zone, put your headphones on and crank through that checklist yourself, which was you when you were in manager role or planning role came up with. I just found that works really well. So um, I'll include a link to that in the show notes, the the Productivity Ninja, I think it was from. It was, I read this years and years ago, so I, I hope I'm quoting the right book, but I think, I think it was that one. I imagine that helps with identifying where your context switching too much as well. Definitely something I have in my role is <laughs> I do context switch too much. So having a list of what I plan to do helps me know where I can push back and say, I'm sorry, I can't do this today. It's going to have to happen on another day. This is why. But it gets very difficult when, especially looking after multiple teams. Yeah, I can imagine. Part of your job is context switching, I guess. So you've just got to, I think if you're working on one thing and you're able to do that, then you can focus on that one thing and not have to context switch. But if part of your role is context switching, as you say, being able to write it down so you can keep track of it. 
Yeah, it's having the discipline to not get overly involved into things and know where to knowledge share or delegate to can be quite tricky. There was a TA I used to work with who had their machine that they're working on downgraded for this purpose, because in their point of view, they shouldn't have been coding anymore. They should be asking the seniors and leading them and their teams on what needs to be produced. So they got a machine that no longer supported Visual Studio. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's how they manage their time. Yeah, quite amusing. I've never heard that before. Well, you've still got a code, but here's Notepad. Your computer supports Notepad. (laughs) You then have to pair, uh, and that's fine. <laughs> Somebody's going to have to uh, type for you while he's sitting on a call. <laughs> <laughs> so we mentioned mentoring a few times and mentoring, coaching, sponsorship. Not all people's workplaces will have other people in there that can mentor, or vice versa if you want to become a mentor. Are there good places to look outside of your workplace if your workplace doesn't support that if you want to become a mentor and help other people or if you want to find a mentor yes definitely so becoming a mentor there are a lot of boot camps who are screaming out for mentors Uh, school of code is one i work with i highly recommend and i can give you some links dan into how people can get involved with that i believe makers academy also have some sort of mentorship scheme I can find out the details for. In terms of finding mentors, there's numerous different ways. So there are some structured programs out there that will make sure that the mentor you're getting has the right training and that kind of thing. Often they're paid for services, unfortunately. You can also just reach out to your local community, whether it's on Twitter, on LinkedIn, going across the .NET Oxford and having a chat on there, seeing if there's anybody who has capacity to take on a mentee. That's how I found most of my mentees. I don't work with the majority of them, but they just reached out saying, look, this is the thing I'm trying to look into. If you've got the capacity to do so, would you mind becoming my mentor? Or if you don't, do you know anyone who might be able to take me on? Being respectful of people's time is always good in these conversations because we get asked a lot from a lot of different people. (laughs) (laughs) So even if it's just that you might not have time, but somebody else might that you're aware of, goes a long way rather than just going, mentor me, yeah. uh, that won't go down too well. <laughs> yeah, and I guess if you if someone starts to mentor you and gives you advice, and I'm not saying you should always do what the, what the person suggests, but if you completely ignore everything, then they're probably not going to want to carry on doing it. So it's kind of maybe maybe listen as well but i suppose it's it's a double-edged sword is it because you can't like blindly do everything that someone else says you've got to actually think about it and make sure it's right for you but likewise it's kind of if it feels like you're ignoring everything they say definitely but it's also the feedback thing again if you think that what your mentor is saying isn't quite right for you let them know about it if the learning approach that they're taking isn't right for you let them know about it And even if you think that the mentor isn't quite what you expected and you don't think that relationship's right, it's fine to turn around and say, actually, I'm not getting what I want out of this. Have your two hours a week back. They'll probably be grateful, (laughs) if anything. But give them some feedback as well on why that wasn't quite right for you so that they can learn from experience too. Yeah, well, I'll definitely include links in the show notes to those places that you mentioned. And you mentioned .NET Oxford. We've got a Slack on our website, .netoxford.com. So listeners, feel free to jump on and ask any questions. If you want to be a mentor, then ask there. Or if, if you're looking for someone, there's, there's some great members in the Slack. So if you're looking for someone to just help out, then reach out there too. So 
before we move on to dev tips, I saw quite a nice quote over the weekend on social media. I'm not sure where the original source was, otherwise I'd credit it, but it just said, leadership is, is not about being the best. Leadership is about making everyone else better. And I really like that, so I thought I would mention that as well. So shall we do dev tips? Oh, dev tips. When did I last get to dev? I guess we've actually covered a few dev tips in this, in that I think my main dev tip would be don't be afraid to fail, which is for some people's biggest blocker with pairing, for example. Like, feel safe to get things wrong, whether that's within your code or some a statement you're saying, but also always listen to feedback. Yeah, absolutely. So my dev tip is, it's the basic one, keeping things simple. And there's the acronym, keep it simple. Well, it stands for, I think it's originally stupid, but there's probably nicer ways of phrasing it. But so the KISS acronym. And I was going to do another dev tip, but then this morning I was working through some code and hands up, it was my own code that I wrote like a couple of years ago. And it's a project that, that I've been working on for a while. And I over-engineered it and it's... It's just a pain to work with, and I'm actively this morning trying to undo that over-engineering. So, so it's not blaming anyone but myself. It was my own code. And, yeah, just the simpler you keep your code, the easier it is for other people to understand. If it's not right, it's easy to change. Just, yeah, keep it simple. That's my dev tip. What a beautiful signpost for how much you've progressed in the last couple of years, though. Seeing your old code and knowing that you can improve it. Exactly, yeah, but I look at my code that I did yesterday and think the same, so I'm not sure whether that's quite <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Um, so before we wrap up, where's the best place for listeners to reach out to you? Twitter's probably the best, Jess P. White. You can get me on LinkedIn, but I look at it less, to be honest, because I'll just think you're a recruiter. <laughs> so <laughs> LinkedIn is probably the best way to get hold of me. I get the same. I just pretty much ignore LinkedIn, but yeah. Yeah, Twitter... Uh, Twitter is always a good place to try and reach out. Right, brilliant. So thank you. Thank you for joining us on the show. It's been great. We, in fact, no, we didn't get the guitars out. We need to find some guitars. I, oh, I can no. see two martial amps in the background too. Yeah, my uh, guitars are over in a corner at the moment. And my other half's taking my banjo into his office. Oh, nice, nice. I, I've got, oh, I forgot to move it. Sometimes I move that. You probably can see it. I don't know whether the camera's showing it yeah. when it's up. But normally I take that out. And I completely forgot today because acoustic from the microphone uh, but uh, yeah i've got an electric over there an acoustic there we got for christmas we got my eldest a guitar he's eight and he's loving it and i'm quite thrilled about that oh excellent yeah really good uh, we'll have to do the guitars next well if you have me back again absolutely yeah, next if you'll come back <laughs> <laughs> no thank you for some very uh challenging questions it's been good and thank you everyone for listening. A quick reminder that this podcast is sponsored by Everstack, which is my own company providing development and consultation services. For more information, visit everstack.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do help me spread the word on social media. I normally use the hashtag unhandledexception, and I can be found on Twitter at Dracan. And my DMs are open. And my blog, danclock.com, has links to all my social stuff too. And we will include links to all the things we've mentioned in the show notes, which can be found on unhandledexceptionpodcast.com.